Thanks for listening to the Campus Collective Podcast. As always, we pray that this resource is a helpful supplement for you as a follower of Jesus and as an active member in your local church. We love God's design for His church, and we believe that this resource could never substitute the incredible things that come from active involvement with a community of believers. Campus Collective is a ministry of Huntington Community Church. To learn more, visit our website at HuntingtonCommunityChurch.com. So this evening I want to start by reading Isaiah 6, 1-5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. Of lips. For my soul, or for my eyes, have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. I think this is such a beautiful passage, but what is the point of it? Why are we starting here? I think it's important for many reasons. One, it shows us who God is. It's God's word, so it's important automatically right there. It shows the people that Isaiah is speaking to. He's speaking to Israel. So, but he's speaking to Israel, but is also applicable to us as well. It shows the glory and the holiness of God, but it also shows the magnitude of sin and the weight that it carries. I mean, if we look at what Isaiah says, he says, woe is me for I am lost. And that woe that he is saying there, he's basically saying, I deserve destruction, wrath. I deserve punishment. I deserve death. That's why I wanted to start with this passage tonight before we dove into Isaiah 53. Because if we do not understand the magnitude of our sin and the weight that it carries, we are going to miss the importance and the beauty of the gospel and the freeing salvation that it brings. So tonight, like I said, we're going to be looking at Isaiah 53. Seeing the prophecy of what is going to happen to Christ and seeing that it is because of Christ that we have hope. And he took the wrath so that the nations would be counted as righteous. He bore the punishment we could not pay so we may have life. But my prayer and hope tonight is that we see a clear example of the gospel. That we are convicted and broken by the gospel. That we see that we are lost and hopeless without Christ. But we also see a beautiful victory that we have through the death and resurrection and that we see the perfect sacrifice of Christ. He bore punishment that we could not pay. But to get to that conclusion, to get to that final statement, we have to see in this chapter there's four, divi- four divisions. We see that Christ is despised and that he is rejected, that Christ is our perfect substitute, that Christ was willing to be sacrificed, and Christ was trampled so we may have hope. But really lean in tonight. Lean into the promises that are made in this passage, focusing on the sufferings of Christ, that he took our place 
when we deserve death. I pray this passage breaks us tonight, like I said earlier, and that we get to use ourselves, our lives, to better glorify God through the gospel. But with that being said, let's look at these 12 verses in Isaiah 53. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our inequities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like the sheep that was before the shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth, but oppressed in judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of the people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in, the, in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put on him the grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. And his knowledge shall be shall the righteous one my servant make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear the iniquities therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his soul to the death to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many in making intercession for the transgressors What a beautiful passage and a beautiful explanation of the gospel. That before the creation of time, God had a plan and now we are seeing just a glimmer of that plan through what Isaiah is saying to us. This plan that one day will come into effect as we will see later on whenever we get to Mark 14 and to the end of the chapter. But look again at what he says in verses one through three. Who has believed what he has heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, and a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not." Isaiah starts by showing us that Christ was despised and rejected. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? Like we've looked at Mark over and over again that he was despised, that he was rejected. We see this to be true whenever we look at the Pharisees and the scribes. They are testing Jesus. They are rejecting him because of what Christ is saying. And even if you remember back in Mark 12 when Anthony was speaking, 
in teaching us that the parable of the vineyard, we see that the son was rejected by the people of the vineyard. But look at what, look at the verse one where Isaiah starts by asking the question, who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has believed what they have heard from us? Isaiah is pointing us back with this question to Isaiah 52 where it was talking about the coming salvation of the Lord and Christ being pierced for our transgressions. Isaiah is asking the question, Isaiah 53, because it is a continuation. He is begging the question to, the, to Israel, who has heard what we have heard and to whom has the Lord been revealed? This is, to me, it was confusing whenever I was studying this, but this is simply just meaning that who would have thought his power, meaning Jesus' power, would be revealed in this way? If we look back even further into Isaiah 9, 6 through 7, it shows a picture of what the Lord will look like one day. And it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of this increase of his government and peace, there will be no end in the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from the time forth and forevermore. When looking at this passage, we hear Isaiah asking the question, who would have thought the power of the Lord would be revealed in this way? He's asking it because it's a shock. They're viewing a king just from what Isaiah 9 is saying. So the idea of the power of the Lord being shown in a way that he would die for us is unheard of. It's shocking. You don't see a king back in that time doing that. You see a king and you think of power, you think of gold, you think of riches. This is what Isaiah is making us look back to, but also preparing, for, preparing us what is to come. We have to remember that Isaiah here is prophesying about something that has not happened yet, but something that will come to be. Verse two and to the end of the chapter is just a continuation of what he is trying to explain to Israel. For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. This is simply just telling us that he is in the shape of man. He is in the likeness of man. Like a plant, he started off small and grew up to be big. He started off as a child and grew up to be a man. But as Isaiah is showing us that Christ was just a man, he was not shown in a form of majesty or a king if we would look at him. Philippians 2, 7 says that he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, but being born in the likeness of man. But even with this, even with their confusion, even with them despising them, Jesus still is the true king. He is still the one Messiah. He is still the true majesty. But when people look at him, they just see a man. I mean, if you look back, Jesus really wasn't anything to be desired. He was poor. His father was a carpenter. And he had no power. The people would think of what they were reading in Isaiah 9 to be what a king should look like. And because of that, leads us to verse 3. <clears throat> he was despised and rejected by men and a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces and he was despised and we esteemed him not. 
He was despised and rejected. You will not be able to see that he was really the true king or the son of God unless you looked at him through the sinless life that he lived. Which Israel and the Jewish leaders of that time, they didn't. They viewed him and despised him, rejected him. And when they finally were able to see who he actually was, they were scared to lose their power, so they rejected him more and plotted against him. We see this to be true in John eleven forty five through 57. Isaiah is still continuing the backdrop of the painting that he's trying to illustrate here. Still helping the people of Israel to understand what chapter 52 was actually saying and is about to hit them hard with the rest of chapter 53. He shows that Christ will be despised, rejected, and that he was just in the form of man. That this is what made Christ to be our perfect substitute for our sin. He continues in verse four, it says, Surely he was born, he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows, yet he, we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. Even though the people despised Jesus, Isaiah is showing us that surely Jesus did carry our sin. He bore our grief, he bore our sorrows. He's showing that payment is about to be paid. But what is interesting is the people didn't see it that way. They didn't see it as Jesus was carrying my sin or your sin or their sin. He, they kind of viewed it as Jesus was carrying something that he did to himself. He was carrying his sin. The people did not understand that it was not his sin, but it was actually the sin of the world that was on his shoulders. But they continued to think that he was smitten by God and it was of his own doing that is happening to him. And this is just simply not true. But how often are we like them? So quick to point the finger, so quick to think, oh, whatever that person did, they must have had it coming to them. The people back in, the, back in time in Israel, they were blind by their lack of understanding, and I feel like we are as well. We fail to see that Christ actually carried our sin and that we are forgiven if we repent and believe. But if we look and continue on in, in verse 5, we really get hit hard with what's happening. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him with his chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. This verse alone shows and proves everything that Israel is thinking is absolutely wrong. Looking at this passage, we see that just the continuation and the repeating that it is a he-we kind of repeated theme. It is our sin and his sacrifice. And this is the sole purpose of the substitutionary atonement. Without it, we have no salvation. But really let this verse sink in. Look at what it is saying. Feel the weight of what it is trying to get us to imagine. We see four times in this one verse the weight of Christ's substitutionary atonement. He was pierced. This is referencing back to whenever he was beaten, whipped with just a whip and whipped with a cat of nine tails, which is a whip with glass shards on the end of it. He was pierced on the side to speed up death on the cross. But why? It's because of our transgression and because of our sin. He was crushed. He was beaten, even crushed by the Father to the point of death, all because of our iniquities and all because of our sin. He was chastised. 
He was cursed, spat on, mocked, placed with the crown of thorns, and beaten more like we stated earlier. And this was all for our peace. His wounds, besides all the brutal punishment that we've already talked about, his hands and his feet were nailed to a cross so we may be healed. Guys, the wages of sin is death. Nothing we could ever do could ever atone for the sin that we have done and the separation that we have caused between us and God. So God trampled on his son, sent his son and trampled on him so he did not have to trample on us. Let that sink in and see that we desperately needed the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And without it, we're hopeless, we're lost, and we're doomed. But I don't just want to pass over that term substitutionary atonement because the meaning of it is so huge. Substitutionary is is just a substitute. Somebody that is going to take the place of another. I mean, you can relate it back to high school. I don't think you have substitutes in college, but um, substitutes in high school to where a substitute teacher is taking the place of your actual teacher. But atonement, sin requires perfect substitute for a payment of sin. So payment or atonement has to happen for sin. A payment has to be made. I don't know if you've ever heard of the artist who's a spoken word. He's propaganda. But he says it this way. And I'm going to try not to butcher this. But sin brings death. Give God his breath back. You owe him. Eternally separated. And the only way to fix it is if someone dies in your place. And that someone's got to be perfect. Or the payment ain't permanent. So if and when you find the perfect person, get him or her to willingly trade his, their perfection for your sin and death. Clearly seen, the only one that can meet God's criteria is God himself. God sent, him son at, God sent himself as Jesus to pay for the cost of us. His righteousness, his death functions as payment. Yes, payment. This is heavy, and I hope that it convicts us that it is because of our sin, all of ours, not Jesus. Jesus didn't sin. It is ours that held him there. And we find this to be true whenever he continues in verse six. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Everything stated before shows to be true that because of our sin, Christ was crucified. He looked, he took our place, he paid our price that we could never pay. But this verse shows how lost the people of Israel is, but also us. And I'm not just talking to you all, I'm also speaking to myself here because I am a sinner and I am broken. We, like sheep, have gone astray. That we is speaking about all of us. Each time we have chosen our sin instead of being obedient to the Father, if we are lost, we are without Christ. We have gone astray, and this points to everyone, not just some of us. At one point or another, we have all have gone astray, fallen our own ways, fallen our own selfish desires. 
We see this to be true if we look at Romans 8. We look at Genesis 3, where Adam and Eve decided to follow their own selfish desires, separating themselves from God. Because of that, we also took part in sin. Because of Adam and Eve, we were born into sin and we are sinners. But what, a, what is beautiful is the last part of verse 6. He took our sin and laid it on himself. Not just some, but all. So don't think that Christ is not able to take your sin or that your sin is so heavy that he is not able to lift it. Because when you do that, you're making small of who Jesus is. But look at the humility that Christ is showing. He laid it on himself. This humility just doesn't stop there. It continues on in verses seven through nine where it gives a beautiful picture of the humility and willingness that Christ had to die for our, our sin and for his people. Verse seven through nine says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that was laid, led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before the shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away and for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and then made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Look at the language that is being said here. He was oppressed, afflicted, placed before the slaughter, judged, stricken, and cut off. This is very similar to what we just saw in verses four through six. But what is so beautiful is the way that he handled it. And it's so different than the way that we handle affliction, persecution today. Like if something happens to us, we tend to fight back. We tend to challenge. We want to be that challenger and deserve what we think is right for us. But look what Jesus did. That's not what he did. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep before the shears, he was silent. So open not his mouth. Jesus was silent. He already knew what was about to happen. He knew what had to take place for the atonement of sin to happen, for us to be with him for eternity. He had to take the punishment. He had to be silent. He had to humble himself and willingly died for our sins. Philippians 2, 7 through 8 says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do we understand the magnitude of what he is saying here and also what he's saying in Isaiah 53, 7 through 9? He was obedient to the point of death and obedient to the point of not even opening his mouth when he was facing persecution and punishment. But could you imagine if Christ was like, no, I'm not doing that. Instead of being silent, he said, no, I will not die for Michael. I will not die for his sin. I will not take his place whenever he was disobedient and chose to choose his own desires instead of following the Father. But he didn't. He knew the price, and he knew that he was going to be beaten, stricken, cast, uh, castized, and crushed, but he still humbled himself and willingly died and took our place for my sin, for yours, and for everyone's.
We serve a holy God. And I pray that you see that, that he is so holy and so willing to die for our sins that he would give up his own life for you. It's something completely opposite of the way that we're thinking because in our way of thinking, if somebody is wrong, they deserve the punishment. And Jesus says, no, I will take that place. He is so holy that he loves his people so much that he provided his son as an atonement for our brokenness. But even though he is so holy and such a holy God, he is still wrathful. Wrathful that he hates sin so much that he trampled on his son and showed us mercy and didn't trample on us. But look at the depth of the wrath that we see and also the reward that comes with it. Verses 10 through 12 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, and he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear the iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and make intercession for the transgressors. Wow. I mean, wow. If you look at that, Jesus cru- or the Lord crushed his son. If you look at that in a different translation, I think it's the NLT, but also in the Greek, it can also translate it as pleasure. The Lord took pleasure in crushing him. This is so mysterious and surprising because this is such a loving God that we serve, but he is so wrathful that he found pleasure in crushing his son. But the father hates sin so much that he had to do it. Scholars believe that this pleasure is the same pleasure that Jesus felt in Hebrews 12, verse 2. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. This pleasure is said to be the same as the Father because the glory it would win for God outweighs death. The salvation that it would bring outweighs and is greater. That the blood that was shed would cover and provide salvation for the nations. David Platt, a great preacher and evangelist, puts it this way. This is what was happening when Jesus was put to the cross. We invite you to especially hear this with joy, the same joy that the Father and the same joy that the Son had, but the joy if you have never put your faith in Jesus. When Jesus went to the cross, he was going to pay the price and endure the penalty in the place of sinners to take the right, righteous wrath of God that is due. Not just sin, but for sinners. You and I, all of us, like Isaiah, stand before God under his wrath, deserving his judgment for our sin, eternal judgment. And Jesus steps into our place and says, I will take the wrath for you upon myself. The Lord had pleasure in doing this because of the further glory that it would bring. And we see this future glory continuing at the end of chapter, or at the end of verse 10 and to the finishing of this chapter. 
that he will see his offspring for what he has done. He will be on the throne for eternity, that he will prosper and the death will not hold him. He will be satisfied with the glory that will be and through him many will be counted righteous. This provides incredible assurance for us. Assurance because God promised it. Verse 12 says, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong. Christ takes our suffering and our sin, but he shares the reward. We are divided a spoil. We are sharing in the reward that Christ has received. Sure, we will not sit on the throne. We won't get that reward. I don't think I want that reward. But we will be rewarded being with him for eternity and being counted as righteous, adopted sons of Jesus. Ephesians 1, 11 through 14 puts it this way. Christ is our inheritance and the joy of being with him in glory for eternity. That's what we get. That's our reward. That's our inheritance. But what is so beautiful is the joy that Jesus had to be on the cross because we are his inheritance. We get to be with him. But what's the point? What's the point of this passage? As the band comes back up, I want to hit you with three applications. I don't want us to leave here thinking little of the gospel or thinking that our sin is too small and not important. So what are we, so what are we to know and believe about this passage? What is the point? We know that we are lost and hopeless without the perfect substitute to take our place and atone for our sins. We know that we are like the Israelites in this passage where we despise and reject the Christ. We know that we need to believe if we have not already believed and set our faith in Christ because that is the only way that we can escape the bondage of sin. There had to be an atonement. There had to be a perfect substitutory atonement for our sins and this was fulfilled through Christ that our sins would be forgiven and we could be with him for eternity. We have to believe and repent and turn away from our sin and follow him. This is so freeing and so beautiful and a joyful news. We should be feeling overwhelmed and all like the angels did in Isaiah 6 where he says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, praising him for what he has done and continuing to do by interceding on our behalf. But the other side of it, seeing what Christ has done and what he had to do because of what we did, it should break us. We should feel like Isaiah where he says, woe is me for I am lost. But also we should feel peace knowing that we are forgiven and our place was taken and the check was cashed when Jesus rose from the dead. And we should just respond with, here I am, Lord, send me. Use me. Any way that you see fit, Lord, I am broken, but I know that you can use me, take me and do whatever you want with me. And last, we, we should do, what we should do with this is we have the gospel. Isaiah served it up on a golden platter so beautifully, but we have to tell the world about it. The lost are condemned to hell. We have to tell them. 
but also we have to remember that the gospel is also for us. We have to remember that we were broken, that we are still sinners and we are still desperately needing Jesus. We have to recognize that he is a righteous and holy God. Will you pray with me? Father, I think it's clear from this passage that we do not deserve your son. We deserve to be trampled, that Jesus did not. He lived a perfect life. He did not have to take our place. But Lord, we are so thankful that he did. Because without him, we are lost. There is no hope. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, you say that we are dead to our sins and the trespasses following the course of this world. But God, because of those two words, everything has changed. But God, because of his grace and his mercy, you saved us. Lord, I pray that it just doesn't stop there. I pray that we are convicted and overwhelmed by the gospel, that we cannot contain what you are wanting us to share with people, that it just overflows. That every person we come in contact with, that we are intentional with them and we share the gospel with them. And I'm praying this for myself as well. Lord, as we continue to worship, I pray that we would give you the glory for your son. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.